Welcome to another episode of the Human Rights Podcast of the Irish Centre for Human Rights. I am Noemi and I'm here with Professor Siobhan Mulalli, Director of the Centre, and Favor Ofya. Today we will talk about a project that the Irish Centre for Human Rights is implementing in Uganda on human trafficking, forced migration and gender equality. Siobhan, can you tell us a bit more about it? Um, yes, uh, good afternoon. The project commenced in 2019. It's a new project jointly funded by Irish Aid and the Irish Research Council under the Coalesce funding programme, which looks at linking research with policy and practice. And the project is linked to the Sustainable Development Goals and also to the key thematic priorities of the Irish Aid Programme and Irish Foreign Policy in relation to gender equality, peace and security, and ensuring effective implementation of policy in the area of human trafficking. It's a three-year project. It's focused in particular on the links with forced migration and displacement in conflict situations, and looking at the gender dimension of human trafficking, how both women and men are differently vulnerable to risks of human trafficking and targeted in different ways by trafficking networks. The project also has a very specific focus on children and the risks faced by children who are displaced in conflict situations at risk of trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation or labour exploitation or forced begging, for example. So that's the project in a nutshell. It's just started and we're in the first of uh, three years. Perfect. And does the centre has any partners uh, in Uganda or outside of the country? Yes, this is a project run by the Irish Centre for Human Rights and the Refugee Law Project in Uganda. So the Refugee Law Project is an ingenious Ugandan civil society organisation that's also an outreach of the School of Law of University of Makerere in Uganda. The RLP was formed in 1999 and its main aim is to approach the refugee problem in Uganda from a human rights point of view. And till date, they've shifted their outlook from just a refugee law point of view to forced migration and justice. They have provision of legal aid, psychosocial welfare. They've branched into transitional justice as this has a focus on refugees as well on other victims of forced displacement, such as IDPs. And they are also trying to look at how to link, as Siobhan said earlier, human trafficking and forced displacement. So Refugee Law Project works mainly uh, with and for refugees. What's the refugee situation like in Uganda at the moment? Uganda today is Africa's largest refugee receiving country and the total population of Uganda would be just over 40 million and they have 1.4 million refugees. The most population of refugees end up in Kampala but you have host communities in the north of Uganda with Ajumani and other parts of northern Uganda. You have refugees coming in from South Sudan, the DRC, from Somalia as well. So there's a lot of inflow of refugees coming into Uganda. So what is the relationship between trafficking, refugees and conflict? Well, this is something that we want to explore. And although it might seem obvious in terms of thinking about forced migration, that human trafficking would be looked at as part of that. 
In fact, many of the humanitarian actors or organizations working on humanitarian assistance don't have a particular mandate or a particular focus on questions of human trafficking. That was something that was highlighted at a first roundtable that we held with the Refugee Law Project in Kampala in early November 2019, that the actors, the NGOs, the criminal justice sector, the public bodies, the government actors who focus on human trafficking are quite different from those who are working on questions of humanitarian assistance or reception conditions for refugees or internally displaced persons, IDPs. And the concern that we have and that the project is hoping to explore is that people who are forcibly displaced, who are in situations of extreme poverty, without all of the usual networks of support um, that they would have in their home countries, may be at risk of human trafficking. They are obvious communities uh, to be targeted for criminal exploitation. And there are some indicators that refugee communities do become the focus of labour recruitment agencies, for example, and that children in refugee camps and refugee settlement areas may also be targeted for the purpose of sexual exploitation. Some of the literature, some of the reports coming through have a particular focus on children from the Karamojo region, for example, in Uganda, who've been found in street situations in Kampala, in begging situations and concerns around risks of sexual exploitation. So all of these factors would suggest that there are risks of human trafficking, where you have large numbers of people who are displaced, in particular from conflict situations. So it's something that we want to explore further. What are these risks? Are refugee communities um, particularly vulnerable? Are humanitarian actors aware of these risks? What kind of prevention programs are being put in place with a specific focus on uh, IDPs, internally displaced persons um, and refugee communities? So going beyond the kind of general response to human trafficking, really looking at the specific risks faced by refugee and IDP communities. This is something that was mentioned earlier in 2019 at the beginning of uh, the academic year, also by UN Special Rapporteur on Trafficking, Maria Grazia Gianmarinaro. We talked about that in the podcast as well. So the link with the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, uh, Resolution 1325, this year is especially marks 20 years of that resolution. So will this be an integral part of the project? Yes, and we're extremely lucky here at the Irish Centre for Human Rights. We have the UN Special Rapporteur on Trafficking in persons. Maria Grazia Gianmarinaro is an adjunct professor here with us. And one of the key areas of her work as Special Rapporteur has been to highlight the links between conflict situations and human trafficking. And again, that might seem obvious, but unusually, the whole question of trafficking in persons has only relatively recently come onto the agenda of the Security Council, which is the executive organ, if you like, within the UN that is tasked with a a primary focus on peace and security. And in particular, since 2015, um, following the presidential declaration of the Security Council, through the annual reports of the Secretary General, and then in 2016, specifically Resolution 2331, 
we've had a specific focus on trafficking in persons and the links with the conflict situation. And as you said, Noemi, this year marks 20 years since Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security. It's also 25 years since the Fourth World Conference on Women, the Beijing Conference and the Platform and Declaration of Action on Women. And it's an opportune time, therefore, to make these links across these different silos, if you like, within the UN system to look at whether peacekeepers, whether peace support operations, whether the Security Council is really engaging with questions around conflict, forced displacement and human trafficking. And we have seen also a recent focus at the International Criminal Court, of course, from the Office of the Prosecutor on the situation of trafficking in persons in Libya. Again, a conflict situation and making those links across the different areas of international criminal law, international human rights law, and international humanitarian law, of course. Going back to the project in the Ugandan context uh, for a moment now, what are the current trends in human trafficking in Uganda? Well, Uganda has been identified as a source destination and transit country for victims and perpetrators of trafficking alike. The trends, however, come in different forms. For transnational trafficking, you mostly have Ugandan nationals being exploited by traffickers to the Gulf countries, some countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Oman, mainly for labor exploitation. But as as is very common with trafficking situations, there isn't one form of exploitation when it comes to it. So you have situations of labor exploitation that also morph into sexual exploitation as well. You also have nationals of other East African countries and other countries being trafficked into Uganda for forced begging, forced prostitution, forced labor, labor in the agricultural and mining industries. In internal trafficking as well, you have kids, as Siobhan rightly said, coming from the northeastern Karamoja region, being trafficked to larger cities like Kampala for purposes of forced begging, forced prostitution, hawking, sexual exploitations and domestic servitude so these are the major trends but then over the past few years there's been new focus on other trends like trafficking for the purpose of child sacrifice illegal organ harvesting for contribution to the illegal organ trade just last year there were reports of young ugandan women in china being trafficked for the purpose of forced surrogacy and there's been reports as well of ugandans being trafficked to southeast asia to Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, for work in the tourism sector as well. So I'd like to say that the trafficking trends in Uganda are quite complex and very multi-pronged. You also have situations where you see the national policies as well in Uganda, policies like labor externalization as well, where the government of Uganda has seen externalization of labor in the form of licensing labor recruitment agencies to take Ugandans abroad as migrant laborers and this turns into situations of trafficking as well. So these are the prevalent trends. And since you mentioned externalization uh, is one of the policies contributing to a certain extent uh, to trafficking, what are the existing legal and policy frameworks that Uganda has in place for dealing with trafficking? Well, Uganda 
has signed but not yet ratified the the year 2000 parliament protocol on trafficking but it has um its own indigenous national legislation on trafficking the 2009 prevention of trafficking in persons act the ptip act and this act criminalizes all forms of trafficking and sets really high thresholds of punishment for offenders of, of trafficking that are consistent with other serious crimes like rape and this is the the main legal framework for addressing trafficking within uganda but you have also the children's act which was amended in 2016 that criminalizes trafficking of children for the purpose of labor and sexual exploitation so these are the major legal frameworks in uganda addressing human trafficking at the moment and just to say, I mean, Uganda is interesting in that it has uh, developed this quite specialised machinery to combat human trafficking. As Favour said, you have a dedicated legislation which is in force now for just over 10 years and the 10th anniversary of its enactment was marked last year in 2019. You also have the Coordinating Office on Trafficking in Persons. You've a specialised uh, bench within the High Court and also a specialised desk within the office of the DPP focusing in particular on investigation and prosecution of crimes and tra- of trafficking in persons. So you have, uh, at least on paper, a very significant machinery that has developed to focus on human trafficking and a number of very active NGOs in this field, Willow for example, focuses primarily on trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation but not exclusively. You have the Platform for Labour Action, again which does a huge amount of work uh, on labour exploitation more broadly but also including trafficking for the purpose of labour exploitation and assisting in the repatriation of victims um, from abroad. And of course you have the international actors, IOM, International Organisation for Migration, ILO and UN Women. So you have a whole range of actors working on human trafficking, but there are significant gaps and some of these are identified in the US State Department Trafficking in Persons report, which of course has a particular focus on the prosecutorial response, but also looks at protection and assistance to victims. And they have over a number of years highlighted gaps in relation to identification of child victims and provision of effective assistance to child victims. And it is interesting to look at the data. Now, the data and the figures and numbers on victims of trafficking are always disputed and NGOs, civil society actors will have much higher figures. But looking at the the TIP report, for example, and looking at the, the response of the Ugandan government a number of steps have been taken not only to identify victims but also to intercept Ugandan travellers uh, going abroad and as Favour mentioned there has been this particular policy of externalisation of labour which is part of a government response to extreme poverty to high levels of unemployment but the government has been criticised as not doing enough to prevent trafficking of Ugandan nationals in countries in the Gulf region, for example, and in Southeast Asia. In 2018, we saw that 599 Ugandan travellers were intercepted by government authorities. The majority of those were women, 477 women, and 122 men. 
and they were assessed as departing to countries that were considered to be at high risk of trafficking and without clear explanation as to the purpose of the travel or the the kind of employment or the protections that would be in place. So that's quite interesting and we always have to be very careful of course in terms of looking at the the field of human trafficking that the preventive and protection responses do not restrict mobility, do not lead to further uh, restrictions on safe migration. But again, this does highlight the, the potential risks and whether or not there is sufficient regulation and oversight, for example, of recruitment agencies. Um, the US State Department, the TIP reports, also raise some concerns around possible complicity uh, on the part of um, officials. Again, this is just reported in the, the TIP report, and it's something that we often see uh, in many countries, whether there are effective prevention measures. And just to add to what Siobhan was just saying, the Ugandan government has also gone a step further to sign bilateral labour agreements with some of the destination countries. So the Ugandan government has bilateral labour agreements with Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Jordan, and they've also been reported to be in negotiations with other countries as well, their destination countries for labor externalization. And apart from that also, you have the lack of assistance to identified victims of trafficking in the destination countries. So in response to that, the Ugandan government has started trying to deal with that issue. There's a labor attaché at the Ugandan embassy in Saudi Arabia, but again, it's questions to the effectiveness of these policies and mechanisms as well to address them. The TIP report has also called for the Ugandan government to take active steps in creating labor attache offices in other embassies in destination countries as well. So these are the host of issues that create two sides of one coin, if you want to put it that way. On one side, great policies on paper, and then on the other side, there are questions surrounding the implementation or the adequate implementation of these policies. And just uh, something that was uh, raised in us, and as I say, we're just in the very early stages of this project, but um, because you have this trend of uh, high numbers of Ugandan nationals traveling abroad for work, um, and we have seen the identification of Ugandan nationals as victims of trafficking, primarily for the purpose of labor exploitation, but also sexual exploitation. Uh, the government is uh, and civil society are involved in facilitating the repatriation of Ugandan nationals who are identified as victims of trafficking abroad. And one of the concerns that has been raised by civil society, by UN agencies and others on the ground is that following return, the levels of assistance available, the kinds of resources that are available it's quite short term. And again, this is something that we see in many countries that the assistance available to victims of trafficking is very limited in duration. It's short term rather than long term. And then if somebody is returning to a situation of extreme poverty with limited employment opportunities, perhaps still in a situation of displacement, there's a high risk, of course, of re-trafficking, and that is a concern that you're kind of returning to a situation um, where there is a kind of vicious cycle of poverty and then targeting again by networks uh, of recruiters, 
who may be linked to criminal networks um, because of course, the root causes, extreme poverty, discrimination, conflict, displacement, gender inequality, these remain. And you mentioned measures of assistance for returning victims of trafficking that have been identified abroad and are repatriated to Uganda or the identification of victims of trafficking that are found in Uganda already. Uh, who's providing this assistance? Are NGOs doing that? Uh, if yes, with what funding and support from the state? And what is in general the situation of human rights defenders also working on trafficking cases? Well, in the provision of support, it's been a constant criticism in the US tip reports that the Ugandan government does not have any formal support mechanisms for identified victims of trafficking. So as Siobhan mentioned earlier, it's NGOs like Willow, who primarily deal with female victims of trafficking for labor exploitation that take on the bulk of the work. You also have NGOs like Dwelling Places that deals with street-related children, Champisi Childcare Ministries that deals with victims of trafficking for the purpose of child sacrifice and illegal organ harvesting. So most of the work done to offer support services to identify victims of trafficking falls on the shoulders of civil society organizations, which can be a burden. And also on another criticism that has been raised is the lack of government support to these organizations. So most of them have to get funding by themselves. And you see in situations for human rights defenders, the current situation in Uganda would be very volatile, although they have support from the government as well, but the extent to which they can carry out their activities is limited because of the involvement of powerful people in society in the business of human trafficking as well. So I'd say for human rights defenders, it's a bit volatile, but the provision of support services mainly rests on the shoulders of civil society organizations like Willow, International Dwelling Places, CHAMPC, and you know, the host of them. You have highlighted many, many difficulties in challenging uh, the current trends in Uganda. Where does the project situate itself? So which challenges does it aim to address? Well... I think the, the kind of starting point and what we're still looking at is really looking at the, the overlaps between situations of forced displacement, uh, conflict situations, um, the risks faced by refugees and internally displaced persons, and whether we're really seeing effective prevention measures um, across all forms of human trafficking, but also in the Ugandan context, we're seeing the data so far and information so far is that there are particular risks of trafficking for the purpose of labour exploitation in the context of the externalisation policy and also concerns that trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation may be under-identified or under-reported. So it's to make those links across those different areas of humanitarian assistance, refugee protection, conflict and forced displacement and trying to look at what would be appropriate policy recommendations and analysis that might be of assistance in strengthening the implementation of the kind of laws and policies that are already there on paper, but maybe are not tailored to the specific situation of conflict and forced displacement and how to strengthen those. I think what we are seeing as well is the 
the gap in terms of really engaging with children as victims of trafficking and the majority of victims who are identified internally in the context of internal trafficking within Uganda are children. And so it's to look at what is happening there, what's happening in terms of prevention, are these specialised assistance measures sufficient, are refugee children particularly at risk, and how can those concerns around child trafficking be linked into the broader kind of response of the state to child protection and children at risk. And so the, the, the project title itself talks about gender equality and the gender dimensions of human trafficking. And as Favour said, and as the, the kind of documentation we've looked at so far and NGOs have told us, you know, the there tends to be a focus on, on women and girls as victims of trafficking and they are the highest numbers of identified victims. But there's quite a gap then in terms of responding to the situation of men who are victims of trafficking for the purpose of labour exploitation and just really a silence around trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation of men and boys. And that's something we're very pleased to be working with the Refugee Law Project because they are one of the few NGOs in the African context and globally who've had a particular focus on sexual exploitation of men and boys as well as of women and girls but trying to break that silence uh, and raise awareness around that and trying to ensure that that dimension of human trafficking is engaged with also by government, by public policy and by NGOs. And indeed donor governments and donor agencies, it's not something that you see high on the agenda, but to have a comprehensive response and approach, particularly in a country where you have 1.4 million refugees, it's something that we, we need to look at. And anecdotally, we have heard reports of men traveling uh, from Uganda to the Gulf region, for example, to work in construction, who uh, become victims of labour exploitation, including trafficking, who also experience sexual exploitation. But there is a fear of a lack of uh, a sense of safety in reporting that uh, and engaging with those experiences. And we have seen recommendations being made about increased training for Ugandan embassy staff, for example, in assisting trafficking victims and in identifying victims and we need to ensure that that engages with all forms of trafficking and recognises also the, the gender dimension that men and boys may become victims of trafficking, may be victims of trafficking also. The identification of men and boys as victims of trafficking is particularly difficult, even in context where there's a strong legislation against trafficking. Mm-hmm. Do you think that is harder when there's such an implementation gap? like in the Ugandan context? Is that a legal difficulty? Is that a cultural hardship? Is that a general problem of the human trafficking framework, internationally speaking? Yes, I, I think, and as your own work has shown, Noemi, um, this is a problem that's certainly not unique to Uganda. In many countries, you see very low numbers of men being identified as victims of trafficking, in particular for sexual exploitation, more so for labour exploitation, and either, even where you do have men who are identified as such, the levels of assistance available, very few countries have specialised shelters, many countries have none at all. And in terms of staff being equipped, uh, training, just 
being aware of the kind of support services that might be needed. It's just not there. So that's really a significant gap in many parts of the world. And it's a gap also in terms of how we think about the, the kind of stereotypical victim as tends to be a woman or a girl. And so there's a lot that's been missed in situations of forced displacement and, and conflict. So again, it's an added challenge in the Ugandan context where historically and still today, there's a lot of silence around sexual violence experienced by men and boys generally. So bringing that into the trafficking agenda and response is, is quite a challenge. So, of course, there's all the question around being able to speak openly about that. Um, there may be fears of reprisal, it may not be seen as being safe to do that. So the work of organisations like the Refugee Law Project in, in breaking that silence, in you know, really undertaking research analysis, bringing forward policy recommendations and supporting men and boys who have experienced uh, sexual violence is critically important. And bringing that over then into the trafficking agenda, into the peace and security agenda, it, it's hugely important, but it's a gap. It's something that we saw that was highlighted by the special representative on sexual violence and conflict situations, uh, marking 10 years of her mandate in 2019. And the Refugee Law Project were invited to speak at that event in New York because of their particular experience in, in opening up that agenda and really highlighting those different dimensions. Um, so that's, that's really important that that happens, but it certainly is an added challenge, but not one that is unique to Uganda. And maybe uh, one last question. What about the regional framework? I believe that some of the challenges that Uganda is facing are not limited to Uganda, but are broader uh, in the East African context. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Favour? Yeah, so in the sub-Saharan context of trafficking, the Eastern Horn of Africa has been highlighted as a source transit and destination area for human trafficking. So bringing it closer to East Africa, there's been a resolve by the East African community to adopt a unifying counter-trafficking legislature. So the East African Legislative Assembly in 2016 passed a bill called the East African Counter Trafficking in Persons Bill and it's in the process of receiving assent from the heads of state for the different East African countries. This bill is groundbreaking in the sense that it also extends liability for offences of trafficking to business organisations or individuals that knowingly profit from trafficking and it's still under review and hopefully in the coming years, maybe this year or the next, it will become law. And then this bill actually supersedes all national counter-trafficking law. So it gives the East African community a unifying law and, you know, something that brings them together so they can drive counter-trafficking policy in the East African community. Also, there's the East African protocol on peace and security that requires states in the East African community to cooperate to eradicate transnational crimes like trafficking as well. So there's work and there's movement in the East African region. It's slow at the moment, but the hope is that in the coming years, it will become you know more concrete and it will become law. And hopefully this will give more speed to counter-trafficking efforts in Uganda and in the East African region in general. Perfect. Thank you, Favor. Thank you, Shwan. So what are the next steps for the project, the next activities that are planned for 2020 and the remaining two years? 
of the project? We launched the project here in Galway in September and we were very lucky to have the UN Special Rapporteur in Trafficking in Persons, uh, Maria Grazia. Gian Marinaro joined us to mark that launch. Also the Chief Commissioner of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, Emily Logan, and the Director of the Refugee Law Project, um, Dr Chris Dolan. So that was a really important event here in September uh, 2019. Uh, we had our first roundtable in Kampala, which was really ex an exploratory discussion with the key actors on the ground in the field in Kampala. And that took place beginning of November, was co-hosted with the Irish Embassy in Uganda, who've really taken on the engagement and support of this project as well. And we were delighted to have Ambassador Carlos opening that event. And that was a really intensive day of discussion, mapping out the work that has already been done on responding to human trafficking and the gaps around the externalisation policy, risks in relation to labour exploitation and linking in with the work of humanitarian actors in refugee protection. So the uh, immediately kind of next steps, we will be launching uh, our first policy brief, which has been prepared by Favour and working with the Refugee Law Project also, mapping out the key legislative and policy developments, the quite significant body of case law from Uganda uh, and some of the policy recommendations that remain to be implemented. And then the the final kind of event of the first year, which hopefully will take place in March, would be a training event, working with judicial officers, working with humanitarian actors, that will take place in Uganda. And then we will continue the analysis and capacity development moving outside of Kampala into the regions. And we're particularly lucky there in that the Refugee Law Project has offices and a presence in the refugee settlements, in particular in northern Uganda. And that's really where we want to work to analyse what's happening there, to continue the capacity building and training initiatives and, and roundtables to get feedback on where the gaps are and where next steps in terms of policy recommendations will be. Thank you very much, Schwan and Favre. And we're looking forward to hearing news about the project and to welcome our partners here in Galway. Thank you. And Thank you, Naomi. I should say we have a website, of course, and we'll be posting the policy brief there. Um, so, yeah, keep an eye out and uh, we'll have uh, hopefully more updates and more analysis of where we're going. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.